Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Life Lessons from Sports and Beyond. Simon here. And I have to say, I think this is probably one of the most important episodes I've recorded in three years of doing this. My guest today is Cal Newport. He's a computer science professor, but more importantly for our purposes, a hugely successful author. Now, I'm often asked for book recommendations and two absolute musts, in my opinion, are Cal's Deep Work and Digital Minimalism. Essential reading, whatever you're into. Now, Deep Work is our ability to work undistracted on something that's cognitively demanding. So if you so much as glance at your phone or any other distraction, you're not doing deep work. Being able to work deeply is a skill and one that needs training. And the problem is, life is quite often now set up to inhibit our ability to deep work. And we are, as a result, more distracted and more anxious as a species than ever before. Now, Cal argues that this is particularly true of iGen. So those are people born between 1995 and 2012. Now, that generation came of age at exactly the same time that smartphone and social media use became ubiquitous. And the research suggests that the impacts that's had on their mental health has been huge. Now, this also has implications in sports. And as a tennis fan, I do propose a theory to Cal, which he supports about why the so-called next generation have failed to break through in the Grand Slams. Now, Cal argues a distracted life is an unnatural one. And what he calls solitude deprivation, which stems from the fact for the first time ever in human history, we never have to feel bored or be alone with our thoughts and feelings has serious and profound implications. But in this episode, we also propose a way to regain control of our lives and the lives of those close to us, as well as our focus and our well-being. Like I say, I really think this is an important episode 
So if you could share it with anyone who might benefit from hearing it, or if you could share it on social media, I would be very grateful. It might make a big difference in someone's life. So without further ado, here is Cal Newport. Cal Newport, how are you? Uh, I am doing well. It's a pleasure to talk to you. As you know, I'm a huge fan of yours. Now, I read a lot of books. It's the last thing I do before I go to sleep, before I put my tape across my mouth, but that's another episode. But I also obviously have to read a lot of books for the podcast as well. I get asked a lot for recommendations, and, and some books for me are absolute musts for, for certain groups. But I think your trilogy, and in particular, Deep Work and Digital Minimalism, I would say they are really important, vital work almost, that I would recommend anyone with any interest read because they are so of the moment and we're going to get a bit alarmist I think but can you just give me a brief overview if you like of how one led to the other and how you came up with this epic trilogy right and and I informally refer to it as my my tech and society trilogy because it's it's looking at impacts of tech on various parts of our culture and the unintended consequences, what we should do about it. And it, it did get kicked off with deep work. Deep work, I actually stumbled into not coming from a perspective of techno criticism. Where, where deep work actually came from is I had, I had written a book in 2012 that was actually about careers, right? So it was called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And it was taking a skeptical look at how do people end up building passionate careers. And it, it famously argued that follow your passion is bad advice. But one of the ideas that came up in that book was, oh, you should get good at things. That gives you leverage in the marketplace. And that's actually the leverage is what you use to, to cultivate a meaningful, passionate career. And so there was this follow-up question of, well, how do I get really good at things? And it was really in trying to answer that question that I came across this notion of deep work as maybe being something that we were underestimating. And, and again, just to give a little bit of context, when I was writing that book, that came out in 2012. I was a, a grad student and then a, a postdoc at MIT. Uh, I was in the theory group at the MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. It was a place where focus, unbroken focus, was a tier one ability that people were very proud about and cultivated as one of the most important things they needed to succeed professionally. And, and so I was familiar with unbroken concentration. And basically, the step I had when I first started thinking about deep work was realizing, oh, this is useful now, not just for weird idiosyncratic jobs, like being a professional theoretician at MIT, this has become important economy wide. All right. And so that's what led to the notion of deep work is we're undervaluing focus and it's technology trends that's leading to it. And, and that's how I came into that world of techno criticism, a world, uh, digital minimalism came after that. And that was turning the turning the uh, perspective away from the world of work and towards our personal life. So our, our relationships with our phones outside of work, social media, YouTube, online news, that began to get out of control. And I really want to understand what was going on there. Why were we suddenly wary where we used to be exuberant? And then a world without email returned to deep work and said, let's answer the second half of this question of uh, where did these techno trends come from that got rid of all focus in the workplace? Were they intentional? Were they unintentional? What's the balance between harm and good? And what's the future of work going to look like? So it's really a world without email and deep work are a pair. 
and then uh, both working at the world of work. And then there's digital minimalism was my take on our personal relationship with technology. And that is the one that's definitely the most alarming and eye-opening to read, really, in terms of some of the statistics and stories you share in there. And we'll get to that. But in a nutshell, a sort of takeaway really is that we are more distracted, more anxious, less capable now really than than in recent times, but that we can reclaim that and you explain how. And I want to kind of work through that that line, if you like, and end with the solutions that you propose. And I think that actually a really nice place to start is is using you as the example. So you have no social media accounts. You never have. You finish your working day at 5.30. You're wildly productive. And that was even when you uh, had small kids, babies running around the house. And I've been writing my first book. I got my first draft in and lockdown in some ways was a bit of a blessing for that. But there's no way I finish work at 5.30 every day. And there's no way it didn't bleed into my evenings and my weekends. So can you just paint a picture of your own deep work and your own relationship to technology, but also how even you have improved it markedly over a period of time? Well, it it helps to recognize there's two different classes of forces at play here and they lead to similar places so we think of them as sort of the maybe the same thing but they're not i think this is critical for understanding our response to it and and sort of my own path so there's the forces that lead us uh, let's summarize as looking at our phone too much right so there's the forces that lead us to be distracting ourselves on youtube to be distracting ourselves on social media to be distracting ourselves on online news we look at our phone too much there's those forces And then there's the forces that cause us in a standard office work environment to be on email all the time, to be on Slack all the time, to constantly be coming back to those communication tools. I think a mistake we often make is to say it's the same thing. We say, yeah, it's tech. We're looking at our tech too much. But the underlying causes are very different, which means the the solutions are very different. And and I I just want to briefly summarize that so then I can understand where, where I navigate through that and why it might be difficult for other people. So when it comes to why you're looking at your phone too much, the non-work-related techno distraction, this storyline has a lot to do with the engineering of these tools to accomplish exactly that goal, uh, combined with a moment in our culture where I think a lot of people are somewhat adrift and are essentially using these distractions as as an escape, as a numbing. It becomes an addictive cycle. This is what keeps me away from negative feelings or gives me little pops of positive feelings. And the solution there is a philosophy like digital minimalism, which is very much cited in the self. You need to figure out what you're all about, then very carefully put those technologies to use on behalf of that. So for example, when it comes to me and social media, I know what I'm trying to do in my life, both in work and outside. I know what's important to me. So I very carefully assess things like Instagram or Twitter. And I say, this doesn't seem like it's a, it's a huge win. There's some advantages. There's a lot of negatives. No, no, forget it. Whereas meh, podcasting, oh, I get a big win there. Uh, blogging, I get a big win there. So I just evaluate these tech and say, uh, is this the best way to use technology to support something I really care about? And if it's not, I say, I'm not going to waste my time. The world of work, drawing us to email, drawing us to Slack, it's completely different. It's not tools defined nefariously to try to steal our attention. The reason why the typical office worker is on email all day, is all Slack all day, has much more to do with the fundamental implicit 
decision about how collaboration unfolds. And this is more my new book, but there's this whole notion of what I call the hyperactive hive mind, which is we've decided on mass, this whole sector of the economy, that the best way to collaborate is just back and forth, unscheduled ad hoc messaging. That demands a lot of checking of these services because you have to keep up with all these asynchronous back and forth conversations for your job to actually work. And so in, in, in work, we're doing that all the time. And now we have very little time left for deep work. So the response there is more complicated because it's more about we have to replace this method of collaboration with alternatives, really specific structures and processes that don't require all these ad hoc unscheduled messages that have to be received. So now we go back to my life. When it comes to things like social media or my phone, I'm in complete control there. And I apply the digital minimalism philosophy and say, I'm sure there's some advantages to Twitter, but not nearly enough for me to give that a piece of my life, right? And so I, I don't use social media. That's that's kind of straightforward. In the world of work, this is where I have the advantage that I'm a professor. It's a highly autonomous job. And so I can have a lot of control over how I collaborate with people and can kind of extricate myself from this hyperactive hive mind uh, enough that I can get my work done, the important stuff done before 5.30, where someone in another position kind of gets screwed here because uh, this is the way my, my boss and my team c communicates. And if I don't participate, then I'm not participating and it's really actually bad for the outcomes. So I like to make those distinctions because some of this is decisions I can make. Some of this is I'm helped by the autonomy I have in my job. And, but it'll be important to keep these two lanes a little bit separate when we do this analysis. The why am I looking at my phone and why am I looking at my inbox? Yeah. So just to look at the world of work first then, and you say you have a, that autonomy to be able to shape your time as you want to. Though I'll, I'll even interrupt that. Go For on. me, the key is not shaping my time, but shaping how I collaborate. Okay. The thing that right. I think is killing office workers is if the implicit rule is we just figure things out on back and forth messaging, you have to check those inboxes all the time. Because if you don't, these back and forth conversations slow. And if they slow, it's actually going to cause real issues. So if you have the autonomy to say, no, we're not going to just rock and roll on email. This is how we're going to figure this out. I'm going to find a way for us to work on this project or this committee meeting or what have you that doesn't require seven or eight back and forth messages. When you have the autonomy to control how you collaborate, you get away from the unscheduled messages. This big message of my new book is that these unscheduled messages require you to have to keep checking so that you can knock that ping pong ball back across the table as soon as it gets to you. That is a huge killer. That's why it makes it impossible for people to get anything done before 5.30. Why people have to work at 6 a.m. or at 8 p.m. is because if you have to service just back and forth unscheduled conversations all day, all you can do is service those conversations and no work gets done. People are probably more autonomous, though, in terms of the way they communicate than they realize. Um, you know, I used to be I still work for the BBC, but I don't work full time for them. And emails pop to and fro. And it's almost a habitual thing of I, an unexamined belief that, oh, I have to reply to this immediately. Or, you know, a message comes in. Whereas, but people can put an out of office on and go, I only check my email between this time and that time. But like people are perhaps more autonomous than they realize. Well, yeah. So I think it's a really good, it's a really good discussion point. So I think you can get maybe a 25% improvement with just the habits with which you interact with your inbox, but that's about all. It's a lot less than people think. I, I mean, I think up to this point, we, we've, we've looked at it through this perspective of, well, your inbox habits are bad. Uh, just, you don't have to respond so quickly and you should just batch your email checking. And a big part of my argument is that can only get you so far because if you're enmeshed in, let's say two dozen different back and forth asynchronous conversations, many of which are somewhat time sensitive, 
this back and forth of 10 emails we're doing today is to try to figure out, you know, when can we book this guest for tomorrow's show? This conversation actually has to finish today. And if we're doing it with back and forth messages, I now have five messages I'm going to have to see from you and respond to to keep this conversation moving. And if all five of those messages are going to get back and forth before the end of day, I have to see each of those messages probably within about 10 or 15 minutes of it arriving. Now I actually have to check the inbox then every five or 10 minutes um, or this guest is not going to get booked. And, and so it's like one of the things I argue is the hyperactive hive mind makes constant checking a necessity uh, regardless of what your your personal relationship is. So, so what you do with batching or not can help maybe up to 25%. You can get another 25 or 30% improvement if you look at it from a process perspective and you say, okay, now I realize the villain here is unscheduled messages that I'm going to have to respond to. So now before we start booking the guests, let me think, is there a better process we can take to do this that will minimize that, that will minimize these back and forth messages that are going to arrive at an unscheduled time and need my response? So now you get another 30% improvement by saying, okay, wait a second, you know, Simon, before we, uh, we got to book this guest today, here's what I'm going to suggest. You know, I have an office hours at the end of the day for one hour, call me during that time. Right. So now you're getting a much bigger improvement because that's five messages that you're going to have to check every five minutes for that have all been taken off your off your uh, plate. So that's maybe uh, 20 or 30 inbox checks you've just eliminated by thinking through the process. That gets you, now you've reduced the problem by half between your habits, but more importantly, focusing on process. The other 50% probably comes from team level collaboration, team level decision making of we need to have more structured ways of organizing this work that's not just happening in email and Slack. And and so I think all three of those pieces have to actually come together to solve the, the problem of needing to check these things all the time. This is what I both love and the challenge of uh, interviewing or talking to you, to you, Cal, is that we've got three books and a fourth one coming basically to, to cover. So we're going to leap around a little bit, but I, I really appreciate your summary actually there because that enables me then to, to flip back to the question of, of social media let's say, or yeah, let's, let's say social media with work and your evaluation of, is this worthwhile for me? And you've decided because of your job to some degree that it's not right for you. And so, but let's flip it to me. Okay. So I've got a podcast and a few other linking projects going on. So th the way I think about it is I have to be on social media for those things, to promote my material, to draw in interest, etc. First of all, I don't want to make it about me, but we could use that as a starting point. But also, how would you suggest someone evaluate whether social media, for example, is something they need for their work? Well, so in the context of work, uh, what you want to do is, I think, be very specific about what are the high value add activities here, right? Um, oh, posting this type of thing on a regular basis, I have evidence that that's going to significantly move the needle on something that matters to me. Uh, being on whatever this platform and documenting this type of thing I do, I think I have real good evidence that this is going to be uh, something that really moves the needle. And once you've identified value-add activities for which you have good evidence they're actually value-add, so you're talking specific activities with specific evidence, then you can say, what's the best way for me to implement that in my life while minimizing the negative impact. And what happens in these professional circumstances almost always when you go through this calculus is that A, the number of activities that you thought were vital get down to a smaller amount. And then you realize that, okay, those smaller amount of activities can be implemented in about 20 minutes a week and have nothing to do with my phone. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I was on a call recently 
through various reasons with a, a relatively famous pop culture figure <laughs> for whom for whom social media uh, was critical, made his career, wouldn't exist without it. But one of the things he was saying is like, uh, yeah, and he had read Digital Minimalism, we were talking about this, and, he's, and he was saying, you challenged me on thinking about it, the stuff I did on there that made my career, uh, it's posting a few things a week, probably would have taken about 10 minutes. And I'm looking at my phone hours and hours a day. Right. And so what we wanted to avoid doing is actually mixing those two things together. So you avoid mixing, you know, I have a friend, a, a writer named uh, Ryan Holiday. Yeah. He's and, been on the pod. Good old Ryan. Yeah. Ryan. So like Ryan does on Twitter stoic quotes or something like it's, yeah. it's, it's actually like a, he's, he's very smart. And he's thought through, he, he does these daily stoic quotes on Twitter. There's a lot of people who like to see the quotes who are into stoicism. It's a great use of social media. It has nothing to do with his phone. Um, he, he writes a lot of these in advance and they're just scheduled to go out there. He's getting a lot of value out of social media, but Twitter has no real role in his life, you know? And that's, I think a great example of you figure out where's the value add activity here. Do I have evidence that adds value? Great. So how do I want to do this to minimize the footprint? really yet to come across someone who has gone through that calculus and at the end they come out at the end of that equation and the answer is i need to be uh looking at my phone four or five hours a day i need yeah. to be fighting with people on twitter <laughs> i need to be yeah. you know uh on instagram following 100 people so specificity really is going to be your friend here absolutely yeah it's interesting so i used to use social media very haphazardly and uh, latterly, I've tried to be a bit more structured with it. We plan it. I'm in a transition period where I'm using it in a new way, but I still have some of those old habits. So I will try and just post one thing a day, but I still feel that pull to go and check it. And we'll touch on why that is. But uh, getting to that point of planning it and just putting it out and then forgetting about it and cutting it right down, like that sounds like a great plan. Now, I want to take another leap, Cal. So... Let's go, let's, let's go from digital minimalism back to deep work. Because as we said, right, all of this is doing in terms of all those hours spent on the phone, what that's doing is that is fracturing our attention. It's having huge impact and we'll get to the alarming stuff imminently. But what it's doing relating to deep work is it's diminishing our ability to do deep work. So can you just differentiate between deep work and shallow work and also how one develops deep ability to do deep work so deep work is undistracted so that means it's an activity in which you are not context shifting so if you're if you're also glancing at a phone if you're also glancing on email uh, it's not deep work you're in you're in a state of of context confusion which which you're getting a fraction of your cognitive capacity so it's undistracted work and it's on something cognitively demanding so you're uh, applying a cognitive skill that you have developed or trained to, to produce something with your brain that has more value. You're doing that in a state of non-distraction. Shallow work is my term for everything else, right? So deep work is where I'm locked into one thing, just using a cognitive still trying to create real value uh, from my brain. And then everything else is shallow work. The, the thing you mentioned, I think is key. Uh, deep work is something that you can get more comfortable with. So the ability to focus on something very intensely without distraction, and you're doing this sort of symbolic reasoning, you're writing, you're coming up with new business strategy, this sort of in your head symbolic reasoning, it's not supernatural for humans to do at a high level. Uh, and it's something that if you practice, you get more used to focusing the mind's eye, you get more used to f uh, sustaining concentration, you get more used to holding complex variables in your working memory and manipulating them, and you get more used to resisting the pulls on your distraction that would ruin that session, you get better at it. 
and it's something that you have to train just like you would train if you wanted to be able to play the guitar you wouldn't expect to be good at it if you picked up a guitar and had never played one before same thing with deep work it's not enough to just say yeah i should concentrate more it really should be okay i want to train my brain to be the type of brain that can do this type of intense concentration and the whole thesis of that book deep work is that there's huge value in that there is huge value in that activity it's at the core of almost anything that moves the needle in the current knowledge economy, the stuff that makes your business grow, the stuff that gets you promoted. That's all deep work. Where the shallow work is more the logistical stuff. It's the stuff that uh, prevents you from getting fired. It's the stuff that prevents your company from uh, defaulting on its bank account. You know, you got to get the invoices in. You got to make sure the forms are filed. The electric company needs to get paid. That all has to happen. That's more about preventing bad things from happening. Deep work is what actually makes the good things happen. And it does have a bit of a relationship with emotional intelligence as well, doesn't it? Because I think of the time when I had trained my concentration to the best it's ever been was, so I did the mindfulness-based stress reduction course by John Kabat-Zinn, eight-week course, 45 minutes of meditation a day for that whole period. And at the end of that period, a couple of things I noticed. First of all, I remember my now wife said, pointed out that we hadn't had an argument in several weeks, right? I mean, we don't argue a lot. So that was point number one. They talk about the response point, the difference between the stimulus and what we do with it. When you feel that flare of the anxiety, anger, whatever it may be, right? So that was one thing. But then as well, I remember going out with a friend towards the end of that period, and I was talking to him and I just noticed that his eyes were just darting all over the place. And I was really aware that he was struggling to focus really on just having a normal conversation and it was actually it was irritating me I was like hello I'm here so yes not only is deep work and developing this ability to concentrate really important in terms of being able to do meaningful and powerful stuff in the world and contribute like you have done with your books but it's also as well our ability to get on well with other people well I think that I think that's right what what's natural probably for humans is more of a sequential cognitive existence, right? By which I mean, I'm doing this thing. And now after a while, I'm done with that thing. And I'm going to kind of put my attention over here. So I'm, I'm, I'm building my hand axe or whatever. Uh, and I'm kind of done with that. And um, now I'm going to go off and on this hunt and I'm doing that for a few hours. And so it's very present. You're kind of in the moment. You're doing one thing at a time. It, it, your, your whole cognitive context is around it, and, and your cognitive context doesn't change that often. That's what we're, we're wired for. And when you instead are in a, a context in which you're constantly shifting that attention back and forth, which is what happens when we have things like phone and email and Slack and all these forces that are continually not only shifting our attention, but shifting it from one thing to another that's completely different. You're shifting now from a crisis at work to news about an infectious pandemic to news about uh, you know a rebuild of your 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 favorite sports team or something <laughs> like completely different emotionally salient but completely different context the human brain isn't meant for that and you get the darty eyes and you get the sort of freneticism and this anxiety and you're having the more arguments with your wife and 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 it, you're, you have this low grade background hum of anxiety and and so yeah I think this is the, the, what what's happening is that the more distracted existence is unnatural. Yeah. And it puts us into those agitated, unnatural states. And so it's a side benefit of saying, I'm going to rebuild my life to be more sequential and focus on one thing at a time and focus on hard things is in addition to actually just really killing it at work, you're getting away more from that very unnatural mode of living. And so then you get that, that general benefit of 
I'm just a little bit calmer and here and just with what's going on and just not so anxious. And, and so I'm, I'm completely with that. There's a, there's an emotional intelligence, but also just a mental health, I think, yeah. writ large issue with, yeah. with the way we're living. Which is a beautiful segue. So thank you, Cal, into, we'll jump book again, into digital minimalism, because in there, it's alarming. You paint in stark terms the impact technology, social media, smartphones is having particularly on younger people so you call them so it's iGen isn't it so people who are born post 1995 and you quote and you'll have to correct me if I get her name wrong is it Jean Twenge I've heard Twenge Twenge it could right, be Twenge okay, yeah I'm Twenge not, yeah. okay well T-W-E-N-G-E so you can see where I went wrong but anyway and she came out with a quote along the lines of that we are on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. So can you just paint a bit of a picture of what you found out and what she said about iGen in particular? Well, my whole introduction to this was before she wrote her her book and her big Atlantic article on this. And by the way, she's a researcher who specializes in exactly these issues. Trends between generations, trying to figure out actual differences between different generations and getting rid of this sort of, well, kids these days type of bias and understanding generational change in attributes or properties, right? So that's what she does. Like what's different between this generation and that? Are there any trends that are different? And and that's her expertise. But even before that, and this would have been probably 2013, maybe 2014, if I have my timeline right, I was doing an event at a college campus and it was uh, had that it was being sponsored by the mental health something something. So I was walking across campus with the head of campus student mental health services. And this is before this talk. I hadn't even written deep work yet. So this was not on my radar yet. And she was talking to saying, like, you know, we we um, we have all this anxiety related mental health issues suddenly. And like we didn't have them before. And now uh, we have a huge amount more number of students who are coming into the mental health clinic on campus, but just raw numbers more than we ever had. And it's almost all anxiety and anxiety related disorders, which is not what we used to see before. We used to see a much more diverse array of sort of standard uh, young person mental health issues. And then at the time, I was like, well, what's going on here? Right. Did something get in the water? And she didn't even hesitate. She said, oh, smartphones. As soon as we saw that first cohort of college students arrived that all had smartphones and had had them throughout high school, so they were really attached to them. She's like, it was a, a light switch, you know? And that put it on my radar. And then uh, Twingy comes out and says, okay, I've studied this data really carefully. There's something very different about this generation. Uh, they're much more anxious, right? There, there, there's something going on here, right? And she's like, it's not really the generation. It really starts pretty suddenly. And, and she says, well, let's look at what is the dividing line between people who have this young people have this big rise in mental health and those don't. And it was exactly where you born just uh, late enough that when you got to your early adolescence, smartphones had crossed the 50% of the population mark. In other words, smartphones had become ubiquitous. And that was the key divider line. And there's all these other theories that came came in. Well, we have all these other explanations for why people might be anxious as kids. There's the there's stuff that was happening with the financial crisis. And then later mm. there was political issues. None of these timelines fit. Right. They, they would have they started too early before the rise happened or they started too late. But the timeline that fit real perfect uh, perfectly was wow, the, this. As soon as you were just old enough to probably have a smartphone when you were 14, 
off the charts. Like you, know, you have the self-reported, but then the self-reported was backed up by data on actual hospital admissions for self-harm attempts by teenagers. And it was this really clear, troubling signal that phones and young people were causing trouble. Now, I, I just want to briefly lay the landscape here because social psychology is very complicated. Um, so you have the group, you have her, you have height, you have other people who are arguing like, come on guys, <laughs> like you hear foot, you hear footprint, hoof, hoof beats, it's horses, right? The, the, this common diagnosis thing, um, this just matches perfectly. Uh, then you have this other group that came in, including some groups based in the UK. They're like, oh, come on, it, it's, it's, there's nothing to do with this. You guys are being alarmist because there's a lot of value to being contrarian uh, in, in social psych. And I've read a lot of these papers though, and it's kind of picking nits. And then you have this whole group in between that's just saying, well, on the one hand, on the other hand, it might be this, but not this. And they're just trying to get grant money. Um, but the reason why I fall on the side of the people who say, I think there's a real issue here is that it's not just that we're teasing out subtle epidemiological signals in some data set, trying to figure out like, Ooh, everyone who went to this, you know, factory has lung cancer. So maybe there's like a bestest there. You talk to young people and they just self-report it. They hmm. say this, right here is making me anxious. Right? So it's it's not like we have to tease this out, like, oh my God, our statisticians found the connection that no one realized. Every young person you talk to says, this is stressing me the hell out, right? So which is what always surprises me when you have all these other social psych, like, well, I uh, I did a reverse regression and I, I found that like the, you might be, oh, your p-value is not as, as strong as you think it is when you're looking at your whatever, whatever. And it's like, yeah, granted, it's hard to do this retrospective research. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of correlated variables, but let's just talk to the people. And they're saying help. Yeah. And I think we should probably take that seriously. So I spoke to Sam Harris recently and he said something which I just thought was pretty on the money, which was just that we've never had the ability to distract ourselves to the extent at which we can now. And I've spoken to other people about uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. And the worst thing you can do is either ignore them or get lost in them. You need to acknowledge them. You need to turn towards them. So first of all, that not sitting with yourself and by yourself. When I say that in this instance, I mean uncomfortable thoughts, uncomfortable feelings, our mind, our emotions, just that turning away from the normal, at times uncomfortable parts of, of human experience. But also then what might seem like a normal feeling to an older person who would expect to feel anxious at times or whatever, suddenly, because they're so unused to having to deal with this, it becomes so overwhelming that they keep turning away from it, keep turning away from it. What's your take on just that inability to sit or be with thoughts and feelings, essentially? Yeah, it, it's a critical issue. I, I mean, I completely agree with Sam on this. I, I have a whole chapter in Digital Minimalism about this, and, and I call it solitude deprivation. And this was exactly my point in that chapter, is that this is a completely novel experiment in human history. Uh, we have never had the ability before to completely banish from our daily life any time alone with our own thoughts. It, it, that was just completely unavoidable until about 10 years ago. You know, it's like, I could be in line, I'm gonna be in the car, I'm waiting for the, the microwave to cook. Like, it was just a normal part of human existence that, of course, there's lots of times throughout the day when it's just you alone with your own thoughts. It took the ubiquitous high-speed wireless internet networks being built out over the whole world and these supercomputers in our pockets to, to get to this place where we can say, what if we could banish that? You know, at every minute, you know, even in the bathroom, we can constantly have distraction. I think it's a really big issue. Uh, and there's a few things that happen from it. One is I'm, I think there's some compelling evidence that just the, the lack of downtime causes anxiety, right? Yeah. So I think that's part of what was going on on the college campuses where the college, the anxiety went up is because uh, when you are 
processing information that was generated by other human minds, which is what you're doing when you're on your phone. That's a high energy, all hands on deck mental state because our, our brains take that very seriously. We're not supposed to be in that state all day long. Like we're supposed to go in that state when I'm talking to my tribe member, I want to do this right. And what are you saying? Let me understand it. Let me simulate your brain. Great. Now I'm going to be hiking across the savannah for three hours and I can get a breather. Um, so I think we exhaust our brains, we get anxiety. Two is what you're talking about. Uh, if you avoid hard things and hard feelings, you don't learn how to make, get used to them, uh, understand them put them into a structure that you can under, explain process them in your life, them. in your trajectory, process them. Yeah. And then you are incredibly, incredibly susceptible. And then three, it's another argument from digital minimalism. Time alone with your own thoughts is where you make sense of your life and it's where you get positive growth, right? Mm. I mean, it, to grow in a non-physical sense, but to grow as a human in, in a sort of character, psychological sense, you have to have this structure of your life and into which you're constantly rebuilding it and integrating new information about your experiences. And man, that made me feel really bad. Why did that make me feel really bad? I don't like the way I was acting there. And maybe that means I'm, I take this virtue pretty seriously. And let me integrate that into my self-conception and, and you process pain, but also celebration. And, and that's how people literally grow. It's how you become a more resilient and interesting and character-rich person is how you become someone who's able to become a, a leader in your own life and in your family and your community. I mean, it's all growth comes from time alone with your own thoughts. And, and in, in digital minimalism, I document person after person. I'm talking about Martin Luther King. I talked about Eisenhower. I talked about Jane Goodall, about how this, this time alone with their own thoughts is where all of their growth came from, the growth yeah. that then led them to be able to do these great things. And so you're missing positive growth you're more susceptible to negative growth and you have this cognitive issue of anxiety that's just completely physiological because the brain is saying uncle and the way we experience uncle is I feel a little bit anxious. So I think solitude deprivation is a huge issue that we're not necessarily realizing. Yeah, a couple of thoughts that I would just like to share. So you talked about that, the need for downtime and I spoke to uh, Sir John Kerwin a great rugby player in his day, but now knighted for services to mental health. And he has a lovely analogy where he talks about, you know, if you're at work and you ring IT and say, my computer's playing up, the first thing they'll say is, well, have you tried turning it on and off, off and on it again? And 95% of the time that does the trick. And he said, look, we need to be doing that with our brains. And he's speaking from his own personal experience. So he factors in these breaks. So that's one point I wanted to say. And then, and you talked about this important kind of looking inward. And it feels to me like it's really important to, to look inward rather than just defining ourselves through comparison and through feedback from others. You need that self-reflection. Whereas it feels like if, if you don't have any time with yourself, how can you define yourself in any other way other than Okay, by the number of likes you get, by the comments of some other people, then you're flailing in the wind of, of approval and all these things that are just so fleeting and essentially empty a lot of the time. Yeah, that that is an extra layer of badness, right? The the if not only are you not getting time alone with your own thoughts, if you're also getting this highly artificial, algorithmically biased feedback on which you're basing your identity instead, then, then that makes things even doubly worse. Now, even without that, it's bad. And we, we see the split with adolescent boys versus girls. Adolescent boys tend to spend, statistically speaking, a lot less time with the social media and a lot more time with excessive video game use. They still have a lot of the same issues because the excessive phone use is mm. keeping them away from reflection. But when you add in the actual activity that happens when you're with 
adolescent girls, we were talking about the actual social media interaction. What you see is the anxiety, anxiety-related disorder numbers, the, the hospitalization for self-harm numbers. Those then jump up way more even than boys because uh, – so now you're not doing the self-reflection and, and, and resilient self-definition. You've replaced it with something that is incredibly volatile and seemingly designed in a lab to make people miserable, even though that was not, that was not the, the intention of mm. it. Um, it's just so highly artificial because there's a lot of factors to it, but you're interacting with other humans without most of the channels of, of, of information that happen in real human interaction. Text is a very impoverished form of communication. It's pseudo-anonymous. Then there's also tribal mm. dynamics at play. And, and, the, and the whole thing is just designed to screw with the, especially the adolescent social brain. And yeah. so, yeah, it's, 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 it's not a great, it's not a great picture. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's not a great, it's not a great picture. No, really not. And it's that superficial communication replacing genuine connection and it re just reminded me actually so recently we went up into we live just outside London and we went my wife and our little girl we went up and got the train up for the first time in ages a few weeks ago and sat opposite us were four teenage girls and they were talking to each other but they were spending more time looking at their phones and they were communicating with each other and we were sat directly opposite them and, and our little girl's six. So I was, I said, right, let's move. Not out of any disrespect to them, but I didn't want our little girl to think that that is something to aspire to. And it was really alarming for me, actually. And, and I had a bit of a theory as well. I want to run something by you, Cal, right? And see what you think of this. Okay. Are, are you a tennis fan at all? Uh, not really. No. Okay. But you know, Roger Federer, you know, yeah. Rafa Nadal, you know, Djokovic. Okay. And you know that they win. So in the last 18 years, They've won 15 years worth of the major titles, okay? Just wildly unprecedented era of domination in the men's game. Now, in your book, like I said, you talk about iGen and that post-1995, and obviously there's the mental health side, the anxiety that's gone through the roof. But obviously what goes with that is that inability to, to focus. 
And there's been this, it's called the next generation. When I read this bit in your book, I was looking at the dates of their birth and only one of them was born pre-1995. So he was born in 1997. Dominic Team, he won the US Open last year. So he's the only one who's, who's actually broken through and, and won something. And then Andy Murray, who's the greatest uh, British tennis player of all time. I read a quote of his around the same time, actually, serendipitously. And he was talking about social media. He came off social media entirely after watching, I think it's called Social Dilemma, I can't remember. But the quote goes, and I've got it in front of me now, and he says... You sit and watch people playing now, professional players practicing, and they sit down on their break and they're on their phone and their coach is on their phone. And it's like, at which point he mimes an interminable scroll through social media. So I have a bit of a theory, right? That you've got Roger Federer, who's just turned 40. He reached the quarterfinals of Wimbledon, having not played for 18 months. You've got Andy Murray, who does pretty well with only one hit. Rafa Nadal Djokovic, these guys are unbeatable. And as I said, the next gen fall into that iGen generation. And I'm convinced, having read your stuff, that something that probably is overlooked, rather than just these three are amazing, which they are, granted, but perhaps slightly overlooked is that, yes, but their competition has been largely impacted by social media and from the research you've done it can't not have had an impact on them yeah no if you're in an elite sport where little differences make a big difference right okay i'm pushing my training in just this way to get a little edge i'm doing this recovery protocol to get a little bit of an edge like everything is about edges uh you're leaving a huge edge on the table if you're a heavy social media user this is becoming much more known. I mean, I talk to a lot of people in professional sports. I have talked to multiple general managers in the NBA. I have talked to multiple uh, Major League Baseball people. I've talked to in the UK, uh, rugby, the national rugby coach over there. Um, there was a there was a period a couple of years ago where Rory McIlroy, the golfer yeah. back when he was sort of at his peak, he came out at the masters, I think in 2019 and during the press conference pointed to my book, digital minimalism. <laughs> he's like, this is like what I'm, this is what I uh, am reading right now because it's helping my game. It got him off of the heavy social media use. Golf is you lose your edge for one stroke and you don't win the major. Right. I mean, of course, you shouldn't be on these things. Of course, is real issue. So anyways, this is being noted more and more. The, the trend I've seen, for example, in the US is that the NBA is most concerned about it, which makes perfect sense because it's basically the youngest cohort of professional sports players you're going to have because the NBA typically you go from basically your teenage years right to a professional team which is quite different than let's say baseball or football, where there's going to be this long, this long move through either a collegiate or minor league system before you're actually at the professional. So they have very young kids being paid a lot of money to play basketball. And a lot of these GMs and coaches are starting to say, well, wait a second, we're losing like a real edge here if they're on these things all the time, because you get a distractible mind. A distractible mind means you're going to lose that focus by some epsilon. That epsilon is the difference between you know, you're able to get in position and block that shot or not. And so I think this is an emerging trend in sports. If I was an up and coming elite professional level athlete, this would be one of my secret weapons. I want nothing to do with a, with my phone. I would demand probably to have a feature phone would probably be the one of the most important pieces of training equipment I had is not owning a smartphone, 
if my agency was on my back about having a social media presence, like a lot of agencies are, I'd be great. I'll hire some, someone to post photos from my practice or whatever. Uh, I, I followed a bunch of big baseball stars who were doing this, who like their, their social media posts were obviously coming from a marketing company because they're like, look, I got to play 162 games a year. I don't want to be distracted with this. Right. Mm. So I, you're on to something big. And I think we're going to be seeing this more. And I'm, we probably, you know, I bet you could do some analysis down the line and look at some of these Olympics that are happening, you know, at this period, we have these peak young people who are peak phones and there's, you know, there's probably something going on there in terms mm. of what it means about performance or this or that. I mean, it's hard to tease it out because there's other improvements in, in equipment and training, et cetera, but you're onto it. Uh, yeah. It makes a difference. So my theory then that this generation, they must have been impacted to some degree. Would you say then that it's almost certain? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think for sure. I think very clearly, if you're a heavy social media user, if you could do the counterfactual, heavy social media user, this athlete versus the counterfactual where they did not use social media, there would be a notable performance drop. Yeah. And even if it was during their formative years, you know, like the, the training years. So like Roger Federer, when he was coming up, like, those formative years when he was developing his game, there was no way he was going, doing that. So even if you do are one of these people who perhaps say, okay, now I'm, I've read digital minimalism, I'm going to stop doing this. They've still perhaps have had a couple of years where they've lost a bit of benefit that they're never going to be able to claw that back. Well, that's the big, that's the big question mark. So it's like the one thing we don't really know is the role of uh, plasticity in this case, right? So, mm. so to what degree, if you live in an incredibly frenetic attention landscape, to what degree is that going to cause permanent changes versus changes that you can then, through reclaiming a focus, reverse? It's actually a giant question mark. Like we don't, we don't, we don't really have a good sense for it. In part because so few people move in that direction. It's like reversing entropy. It's so rare that because the 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 cultural evolution is towards increasing distractibility. So we don't have a lot of subjects to look at. But I don't think we actually know. I mean, if if I become a big deep work aficionado, digital minimalism aficionado, can I make back what I lost? Or is my brain permanently wired? And I don't know that we have that answer. What's your hunch? Um, I think it depends on age. I'm, a, I'm worried about developing adolescent brains because yeah. I think we, we we've seen right. with, with other substances uh, that cross, for example, the blood. So this is more about chemical substances that cross the blood-brain barrier. Yeah. Because so much is forming, it could have a relatively uh, permanent effect. But I think if you're like an office worker who, you know, you're my age and my late 30s, and let's say you're an office worker, you're like, man, really starting around 2006 or seven, email really took off. And now I'm like on email all the time. I don't know. I think you could probably come back from that. I, yeah. I, I think the oh, brain yeah, no, is I agree more... With that. Yeah, yeah, I agree, so I I agree with that. Like, I'm very grateful that... I didn't have social media and all that stuff when I was a teenager. You know, my brain was addled enough through those years without this added impetus. But I just think, like you say, if they argue that other addictive behaviors can have a long lasting impact on the adolescent developing brain, then this surely must do too. Yeah. And why don't our schools worry about this? This is another issue, right? I mean, I think what I'm seeing in education is a negative feedback spiral. So as the young people are more distractible because of technologies, they can't do the same level of academic work because they can't concentrate on the calculus problem. They can't concentrate on the algebra problem set. And what tends to happen then is that we bring down the standard 
down to like, okay, what does fit their current level of distractibility? So you, you end up actually, uh, instead of pushing them to say, no, this work is now going to push you to get more used to, again, focusing on something hard, we bring it down to where they're, they're comfortable and they don't get the strain. And I think this is a negative feedback cycle. Uh, so schools could play a role here in saying, we want you to be able to do math. We want you to be able to read. We also want you to be able to concentrate. I mean, what could be a more important school thing, skill to come out of an institution built on the, you know, effective cognitive development of young people? It's not a tier one issue. And, and, and I think in the education circles, there's a lot of just kids these days, we need to meet them where they are. Mm. And so, you know, let's, let's put them on the iPad uh, let's, let's, you know, whatever. Right. And I think that that's an issue as well, is that we're not trying to counteract these trends. We're just leaning into them to some degree. Yeah. A couple of bits. I just want to quickly skim over and I'm going to mangle someone's name probably again. Now, is it Bill Maher? Uh, Mar. Mar, Mar. There we go. There we go. Two for two. Well done me. You quote him in your book where he does his soliloquy on his show. And I can't remember the name of the show, but, and where he turned and said, look, come on, social media is the modern day cigarette. And you also, I, I've heard you talk as well about, look, how you know it, social media and, for example, smartphones were not designed with addiction and stuff in mind. But for example, like with Facebook, things changed when suddenly shareholders were like, look, we want to get a return on our investment. So therefore, that's when the pressure was on, right? Okay, we need to start getting people to spend more time on Facebook. How do we do that? Okay, we add in likes, then you get that little dopamine hit, because people want to think that other people are thinking about them. And we've gone on since then. I don't think that we need to add much more to that, because I think that's very much out there. But what I found interesting, I did an episode a couple of years ago, and I'm sure you've had this experience with Cheryl Calder. She's been the vision coach for England rugby and she's got something called iGym and she's uh, like really fascinating. And she spoke in really alarming terms about phones and social media and she used the word digital cocaine. Okay, so I then posted that on social media and one technology reporter or something like that went mad and he was like, oh, you know, I'm sick of all this slandering of, of social media, of phones, you know, there's just no evidence for it and that kind of thing. So taking into account what Bill said and taking into account what this guy who was reacting to that social media post, ironically, where do you sit on it? You know, is it the new cigarettes or is it overblown? Well, I mean, I think it's the right terminology is probably moderate behavioral addiction. I, I tried to go down the psychology rabbit hole to figure out how do you how do you classify it's a behavioral addiction, not a substance addiction, because there's not an actual active chemical substance that crosses the blood brain barrier, which is what creates the substance substance addictions like you get with alcohol, like you would get with cocaine, like you would get with nicotine. It doesn't have that. So it falls under the, the notion of behavioral addiction. Right. So a, a behavior you come back to. What makes it an addiction? Well, just technically speaking, it's something that you were doing repeatedly more than you know is useful, right? So you know it's actually causing harm, your engagement with this with this behavior, yet you do it anyways. And, and so, for example, the very first behavioral addiction to be formally identified in the DSM was gambling addiction. That's one we're pretty used to, that it can lead to, I'm gambling more than I should be, and it's causing real trouble in my life. I think clearly for a lot of people, their relationship with, in particular, social media on their phones, but also the relationship uh, with video games, depending on what group we're talking about, satisfies that definition. They're using it way more than they know is useful or helpful to the detriment of other things in their life. And so I think that's kind of hard to avoid, right? So maybe the skepticism that comes back, and for whatever reason, the UK has an interesting strain of, of um, 
skepticism about <laughs> about techno criticism, which I'm which I'm still trying to unpack. It's kind of an interesting. <laughs> it's a really the, the UK has a very interesting relationship. We know it's bunch cow U.S. produced technologies. <laughs> yeah, uh, though we have the same skepticism happening uh, in the U.S. as well. And again, contrarianism is a really big deal in, yeah, in social sure. psych. But maybe what they're pushing back on is uh, this is not cocaine. And it's true in the sense that if you take your phone away, you won't have the sort of physical withdrawal that you might have on a cocaine or even more pronounced like an alcohol addiction where the withdrawal can be life-threatening. Like your body yeah. will, will go into the tremors, but it's really hurting people's lives. They're hmm. using it more than they want to and it's impoverishing their lives. And I think once you cross that threshold, and then the question is, well, what do we do about that? How can we help people? How can we help people take action? So yeah, I don't like to get too locked down into the semantics of what type of addiction it actually is. The point mm. is, this is something that people want to be doing less. And because they're not, it's hurting their lives. That is something we should do something about. Agreed. And gambling can be utterly destructive. But as you say, let's not go for labels. Right. Let's wrap things up with Cal's call to action, how to fix it. And I'm just going to throw a few things out there and let you pick up. So first of all, you talk about needing a philosophy high quality leisure and focusing on the wildly important and working backwards. So could we start there in terms of a, of how to get ourselves out of this rabbit hole? Yeah, this is the definition of minimalism, which is different than minimization. And I think it's a mistake people make when I say, when it comes to technology in your personal life, I believe in digital minimalism. They think that means digital minimization, less is better. And if you get rid of even more technology, even better. Clearly, that's not my stance. I'm a computer scientist. I'm a professional technologist. Minimalism is all about intention. So if you figure out, here's what I really want to do with my time. And again, I'm talking about life outside of work. I really want to put work aside because it's a completely different suite of, of solutions over there. But in your life outside of work and your relationship with technology, you figure out what it is that you want to spend your time on, what you care about, like what are the elements of a life well lived? And then you go backwards and say, how do I strategically deploy some technologies to support these things, everything else I'll just miss out on. That's fine. And so not only is that reducing the amount of technology, you know, laying claim to your life that doesn't need to be there, but the technology you're using now, you know why you're using it. And when you know why you're using a technology, you can put guide rails around it that significantly defang its negative impact, right? And this is the thing I saw again and again with digital minimalism. When you realize that the reason you're using Facebook the thing that supports this importance to you is uh, there's a Facebook group you belong to of, you know, parents of whatever, and, and, and they organize on Facebook groups. When you realize that's why you're using Facebook, you say, oh, I don't need this on my phone. I never need to post to it. I'm going to use a browser plugin that wipes the news feed clean. And all that happens when I go to Facebook.com and type in my password is it goes straight to this Facebook group for the support group I care about. Now, yeah, you're using Facebook but in a way that has almost zero negative consequences. So once you know why you're using the tech, you're able to actually put rules around it that completely defang it. Or if you're an artist who says, I need to be on Instagram because uh, I need to see work from other artists to get inspiration. Oh, if that's the reason why I'm using it, that I don't need to be on my phone. I don't need to be posting. I need to follow just 10 artists and I need to check it on my computer for 20 minutes, one day a week. All of the value is there and none of the addictive scrolling that was that was consuming your life was there. So that's what I recommend. What are you all about? What do you want to do? What matters to you? Deploy technology very specifically to help that. And anything you didn't deploy, just say, I don't have time for it. I don't need to learn what a TikTok is. Uh, you know, I don't need to know about an Instagram story. I've already figured out these things that are helping me and that's good. I'm going to live my life. Yeah. So let's say someone of uh, teenage years or early 20s listening 
how would you encourage them to find out a philosophy to establish what is important to them? Because I think for people of our age, it's a little bit easier when you, you know, perhaps you have a family, you know, you have well-established friends, you have work, hopefully that you enjoy doing. And then for me, you know, I know I like my sport. My wife likes playing the piano, blah, 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 blah. But if you're not fortunate enough to have those things in place, let's say you have defined yourself as we said earlier, through comparison and feedback from others, how would you encourage someone like that to find out or establish their philosophy, establish their values, establish what is important to them? Well, the the two activities here are reflection and experimentation. So you need time alone with your own thoughts just to think things through, to integrate things you encountered. And I read this thing and it was inspiring. Why was that inspiring to me? What does this mean about my life? What do I want to be doing with my life? Have a mole skin that you're pretentiously taking notes on your life and you need reflection. And you need experimentation. Let me sign up for this. Let me do this. Let me let me mm. learn about you know wine, and I'll actually take the course, and I'll or I'll go on this tour. I want to get into this you know uh, woodworking. So why don't I buy experimentation, reflection, right? And then you get the tentative answer to these things matter to me, and then that feedback. You learn more. You do more reflection, more experimentation. The thing I recommend is if you're completely enmeshed in this world of constant distraction, that you never have a time alone. It's just always looking at this thing. Let's take a break. And let's take a break, not as a detox. I really hate that subversion of the term detox, this idea that if you just take a break from your digital overload and then go back to it, you've somehow solved the problem. I think that's completely nonsensical. I hate that term. No, I want you to take a break from the things you can take a break from, the social media, the online news, so that you have cognitive space to aggressively and relentlessly reflect and experiment. And and that's actually what I talk about in the book. I suggest doing this for 30 days. I had 1,600 people do this as part of the research I was doing for uh, the book is 1600 people went through this process and reflected back what worked, what didn't, did they make it? Did they not make it? How did their life look different at the end? But that's what I recommend is it's a, it's an active job to figure out what you're about, what you care about. And the answer is tentative. Like you don't have to get this right. It's not like you're figuring out your creed. That's going to get you through the rest of your life. You just have to shift to someone who actually thinks about this has a tentative answer and is doing their best to live in accordance with that answer. So with your 30 day challenge, just explain the trajectory of how people found that in terms of the, you know, beginning to end and and the pain pleasure that they went through. Well, there's three things I noticed. Um, One, the biggest differentiator, at least anecdotally, between people who made it through 30 days and made a substantive change at the end and those who gave up was the people who said, I'm going to actively fill this time with experiments, with reflection, I'm going to go out there and try to figure out what I care about. They had a much easier time of it. The people who instead took this white knuckle detox approach, which is like, I use my phone too much. So I'm just going to not use it for 30 days because it's bad. I don't want to do bad things. They never made it. They never made it. Right. I mean, it's like, yeah, for a couple of days, like fine. And then you're like, I don't know, I'm really bored and anxious and uh, what the hell, let me just, you know, take out the phone. Let me have a drink. Right. And then, and then they're back into it. Mm -hmm. So you have to you have to aggressively try to figure out the question of what do I want to do instead? If you're not seeking replacements, you're not going to make it through. Uh, I also saw for sure a divide on ages. So there seemed to be a really clear dividing line that people who had gone through their adolescence, let's say, in early adulthood without smartphones, without social media, found it much easier because they were returning to things they had discovered previously. They had gone through these processes as a teenager. They had gone through these processes bored as a college student, and they were sort of returning to things they knew were important. Uh, If you had never done that exercise, if you're 23 years old, it was really terrifying. 
and, and really the word terror was used a lot in the self-reports, right? So it's terrifying at first for a lot of young people to face themselves and the world around them without the distraction. The final thing I learned is that about seven to 10 days is how long it took before the, uh, the nervous tick aspect of it. They're like, gotta look, yeah. gotta look. That goes away after about a week. The terror for the younger people went away for about a week. So you really want to make it about seven to 10 days. Um, and then that tick is going to go away. But you better be aggressively experimenting. I had one young woman say that for the first seven days, she kept pulling out the weather app on her phone because it was the only thing left on her phone that had updating information, right? And so she just, because it was just such a tick. And then she was like, by day 10, okay, that tick was gone. So, so expect that. It'll be tough for seven or 10 days. Uh, that's okay. And if you're young, it might even feel existentially terrifying. Mm -hmm. That's okay. But don't just sit there and white knuckle. The detoxes is uh, that's for substance abuse. And the way we talk about in tech is completely, I really dislike the way we talk about detoxing. This is a, this is about active experimentation. You're rebuilding a new vision of your life at the end. You will then change the digital component of your life to match that. Yeah. So the key thing is seeking the replacement activities, right? So rather that's than, everything. because that's the problem, isn't it? And a lot of us know this, a friend of mine, who's a chef, she was talking about it. I got on the phone to her and I've established that my highest value is connection. So I love chatting to people on the phone. And I had a chat with her and she was like, I would like to do this more rather than sitting, just scrolling on my phone in the evening. And the thing is, that's it, isn't it? Is that the scrolling has replaced valuable, important, enjoyable activities, essentially. So what you're saying is you need to establish them, whether through experimentation, but get some of them. They are as important as the stopping part. Yeah, and and there's there's important there's an important point here I want to underscore because it it was a an argument I made in the book that I, I, it did not make me super popular with especially like the American media and I think there's an there's an important division here that I really want to underscore that when I was studying people who were unhappy with their digital lives it was much less about what they were actually doing with their tools and much more about what those tools were getting in the way of. Right. Yeah. They were, they were, it wasn't what I'm looking at at Instagram makes me unhappy. It's that I'm looking at Instagram when I'm trying to spend time with my kids. And this was like a very consistent note from actual people out there. Right now, we have this different backlash against social media. And when this started to arise, uh, people were like, oh, you must be happy. Right. Because now suddenly, you know, I used to be branded very eccentric that, uh, that I was very skeptical about social media. I, I would be attacked for that and sort of mainstream. Uh, news publications. And then once everyone kind of turned against Facebook and turned against social media, they said, oh, you must be happy. But I was very wary because all of the focus of this sort of anti-social media talk and elite discourses is all focused on the content of what happens on social media. And the reason why I'm worried about that focus is not that I like the content that's on social media. I think most of it's garbage is that it comes from an assumption of like, well, the social media and the heavy use of social media, oh, that's fine. We just have to fix what's on it. And that makes me really worried, right? Because, and, and I think a lot of this comes from the fact that if you, if you talk to people who are in media professionally, for a lot of them, their entire professional career is heavily enmeshed with these social media tools. So it's very, very difficult to, for them to imagine a life in which that was not just centered to the public square, is not centered to cultural discourse. So they can only see it through a lens of, well, how do we fix what's on it? How do we keep the wrong people off or keep the wrong information off? And it's not what I found. This was not, this was not most people's issues, right? This was not most people's issues was what they were seeing. It was how much they were, how much they were using it. And so mm. what you said there, I think is exactly right. It's, it's the reason why looking at your phone in the evening is, 
so distressing. Again, it's not because, well, I'm looking at virus misinformation or something like that. You're probably looking at something that's perfectly reasonable. It's, you know, sports gossip mm, or something. Yeah, it's completely yeah. fine in isolation. Yeah, but Roger it's Federer's that, greatest shots. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, that's not, that's not, yeah, so it's fine. It's not, the, the issue is that you're doing that instead of mm -hmm. having the conversation with your partner, enjoying yeah. that nice glass of wine over this meal you made and you really appreciate it. And then you're going to go see the sunset. It's what you're missing out. And so, I often get attacked because uh, the, the the standard sort of media narrative is like, this stuff is good. It's just the wrong stuff is on it. And all the solutions need to be roughly speaking, sort of legislative or technocratic. Like all we need to be talking about is how can we get commissions in to make sure the bad people don't use social media. And they say, Cal, we hate that you're focusing on, you know, individuals changing their habits because that's going to distract people from what we need to do, which is to get like big legislation passed. That's going to prevent the, you know, the, the people we don't, the bad people from using social media and, 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 and taking money, you know, attacking Mark Zuckerberg or something. And they don't like the individual individualistic approach. And my point is like, I'm sure all of that's relevant and interesting and we don't want bad mis misinformation on social media, but don't mistake that for why people are unhappy. They, right, they are yeah. not unhappy because, um, yeah. We're, we're not correctly, whatever, uh, doing medical information on Twitter. They're unhappy because they're on Twitter for four hours last night instead of doing something they care about. So it's, 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 a, it's where I differ yeah. from a lot of the other discussions. And, and I, I always like to underscore what my lane actually is. That's such a, that's such a good point. Two very separate things, aren't they? And, and like you say, the one you're pointing to is actually, as you pointed out with the uh, mental health statistics, that's arguably the more pressing matter. So then the question becomes, okay, what to do instead? And you talk about analog activities, right? So I know for me, like I said, I like playing tennis. I like cooking. I like talking to friends. I like going for a walk. But can you just talk a bit about, about these? And let's bash around as well some of the things that people can do. And you spoke about experimentation. Yeah, so when you're doing experimentation, the things that came up a lot as, oh, this is what I started doing more of and it was important to me. The things that came up a lot, a lot of these were uh, high quality leisure activities. It tended to be analog leisure activities where you can just appreciate the quality of something for its quality. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're playing tennis and you can see you're getting, you know, I've mastered this shot. You can see improvement. Yeah. You're actually out there. Um, your body is out there in space fighting against gravity. You're, you're building something out of woods. So you can actually see your intention made manifest concretely in front of you. You know, yeah. that type of stuff makes us really uh, satisfied. Real conversation is another thing that comes up all the time. I, I make this clear distinction about connection versus conversation. Mm. Text-based interaction is a highly impoverished form of interaction. Mm. It's useful for logistics, you know, like, uh, sorry, but I'm going to be 10 minutes late or no, no, I'm at the bar across the street. Yeah, it's over here. Like it's great for logistics, but uh, it's missing most of the information that happens in, in person to person interaction. So our brain doesn't treat it like we're really communicating with someone. So a big push to conversation. So I can hear your voice. We're going back and forth. We're on the phone. Even better, we're in person. Hmm. Even better, I've made a non-trivial sacrifice of time and attention on behalf of you. That is the cruel irony of making communication easier and easier between people is our brain takes it less seriously. So the mm. easier it is for me to communicate with you, the less this feels like we have a strong connection and the less value I get out of it. So when you go from, I drove across town to spend time with you and we went through a walk and it was two hours of my day to, I did an emoji in response in a comment on an Instagram post that took me six seconds. 
The first thing feels like I have a strong connection to this person. And it's satisfying to me. This other thing, your brain doesn't know what the hell to think about it, right? Yeah. It, it doesn't even associate it with social connection. So that came up. And then just presence, reflection, awe, gratitude, this sort of just, I'm in the woods and I'm not, and I'm looking at the waterfall and, and yeah. I'm just kind of here. Yeah. Those classes of things, I think, and I guess I would add a third, which is like intellectual exploration. So there definitely was a strain of that as well. Um, I'm going to master philosophy. I'm going to reconnect to theology, the the sort of Ar Aristotelian pushing your brain and its ability to reason and make sense of the world. So these were kind of the four rough categories of the types of things people discovered. And once they started emphasizing those, they're like, oh, I don't need to use this that much anymore. Yeah. To finish then. Cal, let's flip books again and go to deep work and, and that focus because it all ties together. And I was watching a video of yours where you had three ways to develop focus. First of all, you talked about interval training work, embracing boredom and walking meditation were the three I had in mind, but f feel free to add and elaborate on those as much as you see fit. Right. Okay. So, so like when I give, when I give talks on this, the, the three things I, I mention is interval training, which is exactly as you would expect. It's a, it's a timer. It's a timer on your desk. And it's like, I'm going to do this intellectual thing with my full concentration until that timer goes off. And I literally used to do this with college students, right? To try to train college students to be able to concentrate. And we would start at 20 minutes because that was a stretch. Um, and if you, if you break that concentration by like, let me just check my phone or I look at the internet, you have to stop the timer and restart it. And so, okay, you have this pressure of like, I don't want to, I'm going to feel so bad about myself if I can't make it 20 minutes or whatever. And so you do it and you, and you have a clear endpoint. So your brain's like, all right, I'll stick with it because I know when that timer goes off, we can take a break. And then you increase it by 10 minutes, right? So once you're comfortable with the given time, you increase it by 10 minutes. Fantastically, uh, that's fantastically useful. Um, in about two or three months, you should be able to get up. Almost anyone can get up to 90 minutes of intense concentration, which is a great sweet spot. I put under that same category in my talks, the walking meditation you talked about. So mm. that's, uh, I call it productive meditation. You try to work on a professional problem in your head while you walk. And then when you notice your attention wander, you just say, ah, I noticed that. And you bring it back to the problem. You notice mm -hmm. it, you bring it back to the problem. So that's where the meditation piece comes out of it. That's like doing pull-ups for your brain. Like it really aggressively, it's very difficult, but it really aggressively stretches your working memory capability, your ability to hold things in your working memory, access them, reconfigure them, put them back. So it's like, I become a, a concentration machine. <laughs> uh, and so I, that's like one category. Then embrace boredom. That's like the second of the three categories of things I talk about. And there it's about, I don't have distraction at every minute of my life. Uh, you know, there's just long period, like we talked about, there's long periods typically during my day where I might just be a little bit bored. Like I'm, I go for a walk without my phone on the commute. I'm just thinking about something. So you're just really used to not having diversions, not getting rid of diversions altogether, but just making it be very normal that you sometimes don't have diversions. This is critical so that your mind is very comfortable with just focusing on one thing at a time. So if you're always distracting yourself, then you can't really expect your mind to concentrate when it comes time to do deep work because it says you have trained me like Pavlov's dogs when I get bored, I get a treat and I'm bored right now because we're working on the same stupid book chapter. We're trying to write, where's my treat. I am not going to work till I get it. So your mind has to learn. I don't always get a treat. So be bored on a regular basis. The third one I'll throw in, you didn't mention is I also talk about um, putting a support system around these efforts. So that's scheduling and setting. So like, okay, this is when I always do my deep work. So your brain doesn't have to think about it. I'm all about not having to convince yourself to do this. 
Uh, it's yeah, I do it every morning from eight to nine. I do it Friday afternoons. I end where whatever it is, you don't have to think about it. That's when I do it. And then I have a whole setting, which could be your location, but also rituals built around it. All about tricking your brain to get into this mindset as quickly as possible without you having to, to, to wrench it into that mindset. So I go to a different place to do my deep work and I, I walk three blocks around my neighborhood with tea or something. And then I do my deep work. Like you just have to set ritual, set locations. It's all about reducing the activation energy to actually get into the mode. So you, you actively train with things like interval training or productive meditation. You get your general cognitive fitness healthier by embracing boredom. I just, I'm comfortable not having distractions. And then three, you, you focus on schedule and setting so that you're making the, the friction of getting started as easy as possible. Right, that's it. I'm going back to the library. I've spent too much time in this office. Anyway, listen, I want to finish just with with a quote, Cal, which is I nick from one of the trilogy. And it just is, I live the focused life because it's the best life there is. And being intentional about where you apply it, which is where that quote came from Winifred Gallagher from her, her wonderful book, Wrapped, where she talked about she had a, a very scary cancer diagnosis and how she learned after that Oh, my world, how I perceive the world, how I feel, my entire existence is the sum total of what I pay attention to. And by focusing your intention, you know, very careful, where do I want to focus my attention? Then being able just to focus it entirely on what you're doing, that intention plus concentration is the recipe for a good life because now you're not frenetically moving all around. Now your mood, your understanding of the world, your perception of your surroundings is no longer at the whim of whatever's coming through your phone, whatever you hear chattering through the earbuds, whatever got a lot of likes that day, you're in control of your world. I'm going to focus on this and just do this. Then I'm going to focus on this and just do this and just be present when I'm doing it. And as much as possible, focus intentionally on things that are important or interesting or engaging. It literally changes your world. Your perception of the world around you and your life becomes much more positive. So that's why I put that quote at the end of the book. Hmm. Um, a focused life, I think, really is the best life. And I think the converse is that a distracted life is damn near unlivable. And I think a lot of people are increasingly seeing that that is true. Uh, this pandemic probably helped with that. Some other things probably helped with that. Mm. Uh, I don't think there's any other viable option for the life well-lived anymore. The distracted life is not getting us there. I, I, I hope more people embrace you know, what Win Winifred was saying there is that the focused life is where it's at. Mm. And lots of meditation studies show that the default mode, when that's flying, which is the distraction mode, we tend to be less happy. Anyway, like I said, Cal, your trilogy, deep work, digital minimalism, and a world without email, three outstanding books. I really think that they are essential reading. They'll be looked back on in sort of 20, 30, 40, 50 years when the scale of the crisis we've touched on is perhaps appreciated a little more as being like the Bhagavad Gita of its day. But anyway, I just want to say one more thing, Cal, as well, which was that so someone I really like who shall remain nameless, but who I've got to know by refuting email conversation and getting on the phone to this nameless person. We've had several longish chats and I've really enjoyed chatting to him. He knows you and he said that you are funny you're without ego and I will have a lovely time talking to you. And do you know what? He was absolutely spot on. Oh, well, well I really appreciate that. I, I'm assuming this was like my dad you were talking to. Was this <laughs> my son? Yeah. Yeah. If it's your son, you're doing well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I was hoping you were going to say it's, it's a sports star. This is my, my secret because now I'm done writing about this trilogy. I think I've said what I had to say on this topic. And I've realized 
if I was smart, I should write my next book all about the connection of this stuff in sports, just so I can get good tickets. <laughs> there we <laughs> like, absolutely get well, look, invited we to the locker room. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, look, we've touched on it today, Cal. So you know, maybe that's the springboard in. And you know, I tell you, what, I'd lap that up when you get writing about that stuff as well. Anyway, but like I say, it's just been a real joy. So thank you very much indeed for coming on. No, thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks very much for listening to this episode with Cal Newport. Here's a reminder of some of the key takeaways for me. Deep work is a trainable skill and it is necessary in order to produce valuable work and to feel truly emotionally stable. Solitude is really important for our well-being. Learning to be with uncomfortable thoughts and feelings is vital. Finding so-called analog activities through reflection and experimentation is key for a life well lived. And four ways to develop your capacity for deep work include interval training while working, Cal's walking meditation, embracing boredom and scheduling and ritualizing deep work sessions. I'd love to hear which lessons impacted you the most from this episode as I will then select some of them for a new feature going out on this platform, which is a shorter episode I'm going to release at the end of each week, focusing on one specific lesson from my podcast, Past and Present. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'm at Simon Mundy on social media. And just finally, are you signed up to my newsletter, Monday on a Monday yet? This week, we are touching on the unconscious patterns that we all have that impact our lives and the lives of those around us in significant ways. Head to simonmundy.com to sign up. Every week, three of the best life lessons from three years of these interviews and beyond. Anyway, that's it for now. Thanks again. And until next time, goodbye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.